All right, so we are um, we're at the end of Matthew's Gospel, but like I've said, we're not out of Matthew's Gospel. We're going to kind of camp on the Great Commission because really the entire Gospel of Matthew is leading up to this last paragraph. This is the conclusion of the Gospel. So let's take a look at the Scripture. Am, am I good now? Oh, there he is. That's why he's the service director. Okay. This is the conclusion of Matthew's gospel. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So stop right there. What's Jesus saying? I'm the Lord of the universe. Now, he always has been, but then he took on flesh and became the God-man. He died, he rose again, and now he is, as the God-man, Lord of the universe. He has all authority, all power. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All right? Go convert the world to follow me. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're not on your own. You go in my power. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at this phrase, make disciples, and we talked about the danger of losing sight of the mission. What happens to churches and mission organizations when they they say, that's our goal, but then they get distracted into doing a million other things that may be good things, but then those things can pull you away from the main mission of making disciples. All right? Today, though, here's what I want to do. I want to define the word disciple. We've got to know what we're making. In fact, let's step back even further. We've got to be disciples before we make disciples. It would kind of be like this. Let's say, uh, let's say we were an organization that... What their, our sole purpose was to make Cleveland Brown fans, okay? And we met every week, and we had a pep rally, and we had music, and we had a motivational speaker, and we had small groups and planning groups, and our whole purpose was to make Cleveland Brown fans. And we just weren't making Cleveland Brown fans. What if we step back and realize maybe the reason we're not making Cleveland Brown fans is we're really not Cleveland Brown fans ourselves, right? Make disciples! Let's gather and pray and strategize and... Wait a minute. Before we can give our life to making disciples, are you, am I, a disciple? Well, we better define our terms. Well, fortunately, Jesus has not left us in the dark. What is a disciple? So we're going to switch over here to Luke 14. And Jesus tells us what a disciple is. Now, great crowds accompanied him. Now, right here, the, the church growth advisors would say, Jesus, whatever you do, don't say anything to scare people away. Okay? Tickle their ears, compliment them, tell them how encouraging it is that they made the trek out to, to hear him speak. Don't put any uh, demands on them, or you're going to lose him. All right? Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled explaining that that word hate doesn't really mean hate. Not, you don't have to despise your parents. It just means love Jesus more than your parents. Okay, But let's not lose the point. He's saying if it comes down to you following Christ and all of a sudden your family is not too thrilled about this, you choose Christ over your family. They may abandon you. Some of you in this church have been abandoned by your family for following Christ. Others, they feel the disapproval and they go, Mommy and Daddy's approval is far more important to me than following Jesus, so I'm going to go back. I'm going to stop radically following Jesus because I, family's more important to me than Jesus. He says, no, a disciple is one who chooses me even over family. Then he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You've got to be willing to die for me, to suffer an agonizing death. For me, you wear this woman over in Sudan, Miriam Ibrahim, 26, was sentenced Thursday after being convicted of apostasy. What's apostasy? Not you're raised in Islam, you're leaving Islam. That's apostasy. The court in Khartoum, Sudan, ruled that Ibrahim must give birth and nurse her baby before being executed, but must receive 100 lashes immediately after having her baby for adultery. Well, did she commit adultery? Well, yeah, she, what'd she do? She had relations with her Christian husband. That's adultery. Obviously, she had relations with him. She's pregnant. So she need, must be, uh, we're going to let her give birth, then we're going to lash her 100 times, and then we're going to hang her. All right. Um, That's the religion of peace. Abraham, a physician and the daughter of a Christian mother and a Muslim father who abandoned the family as a child. So the the dad abandons the family, so she's raised as a Christian. Uh, She could have spared herself death by hanging simply by renouncing her faith. She's a disciple. Given the choice between just saying, I'm not going to follow Jesus and living a peaceful life, Versus giving birth, being lashed 100 times, and hung to death. She's chosen that. That's what Jesus is talking about. Then he says, slow down. Before you follow me, crowd, I want you to count the cost. I want you to think through what you're getting into. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate uh, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if he's not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You don't go to war without counting the cost. You don't build a new house without seeing if you have the resources to do it. And you don't start to follow me, Jesus says, unless you count the cost. What's the cost? 
You don't put your family first. You're willing to give your life. And then, verse 33. So therefore, any, uh, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's your bank accounts. That's your house. That's your car. That's your money. You renounce it for the sake of Christ. It's no longer yours. It's his. Okay? That's what a disciple is. Let me give you a definition. A disciple is a born-again, baptized, that's, by the way, he says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So um, I would say in the very definition of a disciple, you've got to include baptism. A disciple is a born-again, baptized follower of Christ who has counted the cost and is gladly willing to forsake family, relationships, possessions, and life itself in the joy of following after his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, let me ask you. In your effort to make disciples, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? Now, at this point, I'm sure a lot of people in the crowd said, I'm out. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I don't need a bunch of, I don't need a crowd to follow me around. I want disciples. Are you on board as a disciple? And some of you need to decide. Some of you need to say, well, I'm a churchgoer. I'm a suburban, comfortable person who I could use some biblical knowledge to help me live my life better, but this, no. Then choose. Choose and follow through on your choice. Either follow him or quit wasting his time. You don't hear that too often, do you? What are you doing wasting his time? What are you doing wasting your family's time? Make a choice and be a disciple or say goodbye to Jesus. Okay? Now, this raises some questions. Wait a minute. I thought you were a Christian by faith alone. This seems like you're a Christian by radical commitment. So question number one, how, uh, how do you reconcile justification by faith alone with this radical call to discipleship? How do you fit these two things together? Right. Another question. If this is true, then most of the people I know who claim to be Christians aren't really disciples. Is that true? And won't this scare people away? Some interesting questions. So here's what I want to do. I want to examine this passage, this radical call to discipleship, from four different angles. Because I think when we see the, the fuller picture of what the whole of Scripture has to say, this is going to make more sense. All right? So let's take a look at this from, maybe another way to look at it is call it putting on four different pairs of glasses. Four different lenses through which uh, we can examine what a disciple is. All right? So the first lens that I want to look at this passage through is the faith alone lens. Some theologians have tried to remove the tension between salvation by faith alone and this radical call to discipleship by creating two categories. I would call it a false distinction between salvation and discipleship. All right? In fact, there's a whole school of thought uh, called the Grace Theological Society that, 
that its full-time job is to say you are saved by faith alone and adding any other expectation uh, is destroying the gospel. In fact, here's a, one of the, the, the leading proponents of, we call this the no lordship view. I call it easy believism. Zane Hodges says this, How fortunate that one's entrance into the kingdom of God does not depend on his discipleship. If it did, how few would ever enter that kingdom? So here's what he's saying. Just believe in your head that Jesus died for you and you're saved. That's level one. Level two, on the other hand, that's this radical commitment to Jesus as a disciple. Now, it'd be nice if you all did that, but don't worry about it because you're still saved if you just have an intellectual commitment to Jesus. Let's not get too radical. But, you know, a a few of you might want to just get really radical and follow Jesus. But you're still saved whether you do that or not. That's what this position holds. What they have to do is, is look at Luke 14 and say, yeah, that's a radical call to discipleship, but it has nothing to do with salvation. And his reasoning is this. Well, just imagine how few Christians there really would be if this call to discipleship was somehow tied in with salvation. Didn't Jesus say the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few? Oh, we certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to narrow the numbers down to just a few. Okay. Now, let me show you a parallel. Let me, let me show you why the radical call to discipleship cannot be separated from the call to salvation. Here in Luke's gospel, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, and here he says, you've got to hate your father and mother. But there's large crowds, he turns to them, and then verse 27, it says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, they would say, well, he's just calling you to level two Christianity here. Not, there's, this is not about salvation. But let's take a look at the parallel passage in Mark's gospel. In Mark 8, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, the same, the same situation, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is the same situation. But now look what he says to the same crowd. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. He's talking about eternal salvation here. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The damnation of a soul is at stake here. So I don't think you can say, well, just believe in Jesus, that's step one, and whether you ever get radical or not, that, that doesn't matter. No, he, he is calling, he's telling the crowd, you've got to hate your parents, be willing to, to forsake your, your own relationships, you've got to be willing to die, and your soul depends on this. So... This idea that you can just have a casual commitment to Jesus and your life never needs to change is sending people to hell. Yet that's the message 
that has overtaken the evangelical world. Right? Now, how do you reconcile this with salvation by faith alone? You know, I would die to fight for the purity of the gospel. To fight for what the reformers called sola fide, that you are justified before God by faith alone, not by anything you do. How do you reconcile that with this call that says true saving faith is radical? Well, here's how you reconcile it. True saving faith is not just intellectual. True saving faith is the result of God giving you a new heart. And that new heart can't go on living like it used to. It must produce radical commitment to Christ, or it's not true faith. You know, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel talks about the new covenant. And Jesus at the Last Supper Holds up the cup and he says, this is the covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant. So this should describe new covenant believers. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A true believer in the new covenant, is, it's not just something that goes on up here in the head. It's a new heart, and that heart now longs to obey him and to be radical. If it doesn't, you're not saved. That's not salvation by works. That's salvation by true faith. And true faith is a radical heart change. The reformers put it this way. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. So are you a disciple? What's the definition again? I'll read it from here. A baptized, born-again follower of Christ who's counted the cost and is gladly willing to forsake family, relationships, possessions, and life itself. In following after his, in joyfully following after his Lord and Savior. Are you a disciple? So that's the lens of sola fide, faith alone. Now let's take a, a look at it through the lens of Christ's worth. Here's why you exist. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created through him and for him. If you're not living for that purpose, you are in rebellion against your creator. Right? Christ Uh, Created you, and you are to glorify him by living for him. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. If If your goal, if your purpose is to glorify Christ, what glorifies him more? A, nominal churchgoers who are kind of committed to Christ, but when it gets too hard, no. That, or followers who've counted the cost and are gladly willing to forsake family and all their possessions and life itself to follow him. 
If you're created for the glory of Jesus, which one brings him more glory? A or B? You can, all right, let's, let's make this a verbal response. Which one brings him more glory, A or B? B. Very good, okay. You've won a million dollars. Anybody know who that is? That is King Edward VIII as a young man. He went on to become King of England. You know who that is? Her name is Wallace Simpson. She's an American. He fell in love with her, but as king, he couldn't marry an American. So he abdicated the throne to marry her. Now, it's not as pure as you think. I found out there's a little hanky-panky involved, but let's keep it PG, all right? Ladies, what's more glorifying to you? Some guy who says, hey, you want to get together and maybe see if marriage will work and hey, if we're still together five years from now, hey, great, if not, you know, we'll go our own way. Or B, the king of England abdicating the throne because he's so intensely in love with you. B, very good, right? B, good. You're a sharp one. Okay. It's kind of like our life, isn't it? Me abdicating the throne. Okay. Christ is saying, I am worth you giving, giving up and living for your measly bank account and your measly American life. I'm worth it. And when you live that way, it brings me glory. And that is the purpose of for which you were created. And when you're living for the purpose for which you were created, there is deep joy. We don't buy that, do we? We think being our own king and kingdom is what will bring us true joy as opposed to radically following him. Now, the marriage analogy helps us understand some other things. Okay, First of all, it helps us understand the worth of Christ. He says this brings me glory okay by the way i think this is also a proof for the deity of christ what man goes around saying you must hate your father and mother and your wife and your spouse and your kids and you must be willing to die for me unless you're god his radical call to follow him is something only god can make So first we see uh, Christ's worth, but there's a second thing that the marriage analogy brings to us, and that is it helps us um, to to avoid what I call morbid Christianity. See, there are some people who read Luke 14, and they read about abandoning parents and losing everything, and they go, Well, the real spiritual Christians choose a life of misery all the time. The essence of Christianity is misery. But let's look at that from the perspective of marriage. When you get married, here's a traditional vow. I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, 
for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. Okay? What if, what if people said, oh, I took the vow, so the minute we're married, we're going to exist in poverty and in sickness and misery? Because we took the vow. No, 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 no. The vow is not that marriage is all about poverty, sickness, and misery. The vow is that I am in love with you and I will stay committed to you even if poverty, sickness, and misery comes our way. But it's not the essence of marriage. The essence of following Christ is yes, If you need to give your life, if you need to be abandoned by your family, if you need to give it all away to help meet the church budget or to support missions, you do it. But living in a state of misery, see, that's where subtly legalism and judgmentalism comes in because I live in this state of asceticism. And misery, I'm a more spiritual Christian than you. No, you know, Paul said, I know what it's like to be in need, but I also know what it's like to live in abundance. Enjoy the good times while he gives them to you, but behind it all, you're willing to abandon it all because it's not what you're living for. The question is, is it what you're living for? One more thing that the marriage analogy helps us to understand. When you take the vow, you're married. You don't earn marriage by years of enduring sickness, poverty, and misery. Finally, at the end, we can declare that they're... No, you are declared married up front. And when you trust in Christ, you are declared forgiven, adopted, justified up front. And then when these things come, if you're a true believer... You will endure them. And and this also helps us understand the, the concept that you're justified by faith alone. You are justified up front when you trust in Christ. But part of that trust involves, like in the marriage vow, realizing what you're getting into. I trust Christ and wherever he leads me. It could be into poverty. It could be into sickness. It could be into persecution. It could be into losing my family. But it might not. But I am committed to him and you are justified up front with that commitment to him. And then the rest flows. So, don't think this is teaching that you earn your justification through persecution. You are justified when you truly trust in Christ and he will give you the ability to endure. All right? Now, let's look at this. So we, so we saw this from the perspective of justification by faith alone. We saw it from the perspective of the worth of Christ. Now let's take a look at it from the perspective of a doctrine called irresistible grace. This is a theme or a, or a term that theologians use To convey the truth that when God calls a person to be a disciple, God overcomes that person's resistance, that person's doubt, that person's fear, and replaces it with love and trust and confidence and true faith. In other words, those who believe 
in irresistible grace will not shy away from preaching Luke 14. Because, you know what? If God's drawing you, you're going to say, I don't like the idea of being persecuted, but bring it on. If, if that's what Christ has for me, he is so irresistible. He is drawing me to himself that whatever barriers he throws down, I know he'll give me the grace to endure. So I'm going to follow him anyways. The rest will stop following him. You know, Pastor Brian, that's not what preaching is for. Preaching is to, to build a big church and have lots and lots of crowds. Are you reading the same Bible as me? See, your view of preaching is more tainted by American evangelicalism than Jesus. Turning to the crowds, he said, if anybody would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and be willing to forsake all relationships. It thins out the crowd, but it draws the true believer. Now, the question is, is irresistible grace true? Does the Bible teach that God irresistible, irresistibly draws people to himself? Absolutely. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Guess what? Not everybody comes to Christ. Therefore, not everybody is given to Christ. <gasps> what are you going to do with that verse? If you're a Christian, it's because God gave you to Christ. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Not everybody's raised up. But those who are raised up, guess what? They're the ones who came to Christ, and no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's irresistible grace. By that way, the word draw, it's a very strong word. It's used of Paul being dragged as he's being persecuted in the book of Acts. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's not as many as believed were then appointed to eternal life. It's the ones who God had already appointed to eternal life. They were irresistibly drawn to the gospel and they believed Galatians 1.15, Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, Paul, the rebel who hated Christ, who persecuted Christians. Oh, before he was born, guess what, Paul? You're destined to be saved and become an apostle. Kind of hard to refute. I mean, the, 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 Human flesh inside of us says, I don't like God being that much in control. If he wasn't, you'd never be saved. You'd still be, you'd be on the golf course this morning. Right? And I'm not picking on you, George, okay? <laughs> John six fifty four, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So he said something rather creepy. You got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And they, they didn't like it. 
when many of his disciples, and by the way, the word disciple can be used to mean a true born-again believer, follower. It can also be used generically for the crowd. Here, it's being used generically for the crowd. When many of his disciples, his, his uh, external followers, heard it about drinking and eating his flesh and blood, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And a bunch of them left. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And again, the church growth people ran up to Jesus and said, no, 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 you've got you've to run after them and you've got you've to change everything to please them. And what does he do? He says, no. Jesus turned to the 12. Do you want to go away as well? There's the door. While everybody's leaving, there's the door. What does Peter say, though? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'm sure Peter says, I don't understand this whole eat your flesh and drink your blood thing, but I do know that I'm following you. That's irresistible grace. You see, why does this matter? If irresistible grace is true, then radical calls to discipleship can be preached. Where they're not preached, okay, let me say this. Where they're not preached, there's Arminian theology behind it. It's up to us and our clever lighting and programming and music and ear tickling to draw people in and save them. It's up to us. So we better have like massive programming and strategizing of how to do the service so it pleases everyone because salvation is in our hands. If you believe in, in uh, uh, irresistible grace, if you believe in the Bible, then you preach it. You call people to be radical disciples and if they walk away, it's on them. Which one are you? Are you a, oh, we better do it differently? We don't want to scare people away. It's not what I learned in marketing school. It's not what we do in our company. Pastor Brian could learn a few things from our company. I could learn a few things from Jesus. I'll go with Jesus. By the way, I was a marketing major. I know all about it. My dad's a salesman. I know all what you could do. I know how I could preach to have a megachurch. Is that what you want? You have to get a new pastor. But if it's not that hard to have a megachurch, people. Just tickle their ears. If Joel Osteen can do it, who can't do it? But what's hard is to call people to radical discipleship. Are you a disciple? That's more important than feeling good for a few years on this earth because we created a megachurch. But some people would rather have that than true radical calls to Jesus Christ who died on a cross to pay for our sins. All right. Last lens we want to look through. 
The perseverance of the saints. That's another doctrine. It's a term theologians use to describe the promise that true believers will persevere in the faith to the end because God is holding them. Right? It's what Jesus said here in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and I and the father are one. It's a promise that his true sheep will never abandon the faith. Now, what this should produce in us, if we're true believers, is when we hear this radical call to discipleship, it, what it shouldn't produce is self-confidence. Peter had self-confidence. Lord, even if you have to die, I'll die with you. And a few minutes later, he's denying that he even knows Jesus because Peter was trusting in himself. We don't, don't go there. If I'm trusting in my ability to be a martyr, I'm going to flee. Okay? But what God does want us to do is hear the call to radical discipleship with the promise of the perseverance of the saints, the promise that he will not let us go. And we say, even though in my own flesh I can't do it, I want to do it, and I'm going to trust in your grace to see me through. You don't do this in your own strength. You don't even believe in your own strength. You believe because he opens your heart to believe. And then you trust in that, that grace and his persevering holding power to keep you believing. It's very similar to what he says here in Mark thirteen eleven. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you at that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He's saying, don't worry. But don't trust in yourself. Trust that I will give you the grace. I will give you the words to say. I will give you the grace. I will give you the endurance that you need when your faith is tested. So now, I think when we look at this radical call to discipleship from all these different angles, we can see that we can say, yes, Lord. It's not a contradiction of salvation by faith alone. It does glorify Christ far more than being nominal. Those of you who are being irresistibly drawn... Yeah, count the cost, but after you count the cost, you say, phooey on the cost. And you trust, not in yourself, but you trust in him to give you the grace to keep going. That's a disciple. Are you a disciple? Choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. 
Lord, remove fear. Remove doubt. Remove idols. Lord, some of us need to say, I don't care what my friends, family, even spouse says about following you. I will follow. Lord, I pray for this woman over in Sudan that you would give her the grace and the strength to stay faithful to you. And Lord, I pray that you would give a dose of that same faith to us so we would be radical disciples. And Lord, our trust is not in ourselves, but in you. We need your grace. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.